evening, y'all. Welcome to Sojourn Midtown. My name is Justin Carl, and I'm the pastor of Next Steps, and I'm glad you're here tonight. How's everyone doing? All right, we got to do it one more time because the six is super chill, which is great, but I'm not exactly a super chill preacher. I'm more of a let's get in the word of God and hear what God has to say. So one more time, how are we doing tonight? Ah, much better. I like it. Well, hey, Tonight, we're going to talk about family. We're in a sermon series called The Five Identities. And Sojourn believes that when you become a Christian, you receive five identities from God. And we get this from the New Testament. We get this from the book of Acts. But you become a worshiper. We used to worship the world and ourselves, but now we worship God. We become a servant, which was last week. We used to serve ourselves, but now we serve King Jesus. And we also are a disciple and a witness to what God has done. But tonight, we're gonna talk about being family. And I don't wanna be the preacher that's always talking about his kids, but look how cute this baby is. Mm Mm-hmm, that's my baby. He's two months old now. His name is Tyler. Um, He's absolutely perfect, as you would assume. And um, I'm really tired, and so is my wonderful wife. We are a little exhausted. But family is a loaded, loaded concept in our culture. Even just the image like that evokes a sweetness about thinking about a little family and a baby. But for some of you, when I say family, only sour notes come up. What should have been the safest place in the whole universe was a place that feels like more like a scandal now. And we see that family sucks us in. If we look at the TV programming over the past 50 years, take a look. We got the Brady Bunch, we got the Cosby Show, We got Full House, that's what I grew up with. We got The Simpsons, a dysfunctional family. Yeah, you like The Simpsons. And then we got like Modern Family. And I could have put two dozen more of these shows because they're the highest rated shows on television or shows like Seinfeld or Friends that act like family as a friend group because family's addicting to watch. Whether we're appalled or in love or intrigued, it doesn't really matter. Because we know family matters, because by definition, family is the center of our first and therefore longest relationships. And so it becomes a little theater for who we really are, because your family's known you way too long for you to hide. And so we have this huge question. We can be someone else at college. We can be someone else at work. We can move to another city and be someone else. But it's tough to be someone else around your family. And so right now, we're gonna dive into the question this text is begging us. This text is asking, who is Jesus's family? And what's that mean for us? And what's that mean for for Sojourn? Because how we see ourselves will impact everything we do. All everything we do flows from who we are. What we do always flows from who we are. And this text starts with a shocking but understandable reaction to Jesus from his flesh and blood family. Look at verse 20 and 21 with me. It says, then he went home. So Jesus heads home. He's been out preaching and doing his thing and he heads home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. I've been to a lot of restaurants and I've been to some crowded restaurants in my life. I've never been to a restaurant so crowded that I couldn't even eat. Jesus has become a rock star for Palestine and Israel. There are people flooding from other countries just to be close, just to touch him, just to be near him. 
And look what his family says. It says, when his family heard about this, they didn't even know he was coming home. They went to take charge or to seize him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And in Greek, he is out of his mind means he is out of his mind. His family believes that he has lost his marbles, that Jesus is not right any longer. And the question is, why would they say this about Jesus? But it's easy to forget we focus on Jesus's ministry. Their experience of Jesus up until that point had been 30 very normal years of Jesus being a baby, to being a toddler, to being a little boy, to being a young man, to now being about 30 years old. He's been out here just making chairs and tables and whatever a carpenter does, probably living with his mom and his brothers and sisters. But if you start with the gospel of Mark, you see that Jesus left home about a year earlier than this scene. And the first thing Jesus went and did is he went and saw the most famous religious person in Israel, John the Baptist. And he got dunked and baptized. And then immediately after that, the spirit of God ushered Jesus away out into the wilderness for 40 straight days with no plan, no food, and no water. He didn't exactly send an email or send any correspondence to his family saying, hey, I disappeared suddenly today. I'll be back at some undisclosed time. And if he did send an email to his family, what would it even read like? It would read like this. Dear mom. Yes, in my reenactment of the New Testament, we use typewriters to send emails. Dear mom, going to do battle for the fate of the universe against Satan. A test of wills and faithfulness to God, my father. Don't worry, the angels and animals will attend to me. And you know I know my Bible pretty well. By the way, I met John the Baptist and he's legit. Sincerely your son, the Messiah. Jesus has lived a strange past year. He has lived a year apart from his family. And if you think living in the desert and battling Satan is weird, it only gets stranger when he returns because then he starts his preaching and teaching ministry and literally thousands of people are pouring in from other countries to hear him teach and he is healing everyone who comes to him and throwing out every demon presented to him. And most recently, he climbed up on a mountain right before this passage and then called 12 full-grown men out of their vocations and into full-time discipleship with him. He had just called 12 men to follow him around full-time, all the time, and now he's back in town. And so his family, they are a little freaked out. They do believe he's lost his mind, and that's a reasonable assumption. It's just not a right one. It's reasonable. It's just not right. And that statement that he's out of his mind is just like where they're standing. It's a reasonable place to be standing outside, but it's the wrong place. Look at verse 31 and 32 and pay attention to what the text is showing you. Let's dive in. It says, then Jesus's mother and brother arrived standing outside. They should be the people loving and supporting and learning from Jesus. They should be his first followers. But instead they're standing far off. They're standing outside. They're standing in the place of judgment over their brother. 
Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now Jesus has been calling people to faith, calling people to follow him, calling people to leave their lives of sin. But now we have in this picture, the Bible shows us his family has come calling. From outside the house, they're calling to Jesus to say, come follow our ways instead, Jesus. Calling Jesus to come to his senses. Calling Jesus to stop his mission. His family loves him, but they misunderstand who he is. They should be sitting at his feet listening, and instead they're on the outside judging. And as a quick aside, have you ever felt misunderstood? Have you ever had a moment where you're you're trying to obey God and his holiness or his love and and people start to judge you and your family doesn't have really a category for what you're doing and they start to judge you and you feel misunderstood? I know I've been there and I wanna let you know Jesus has been there. Jesus is the misunderstood one. The very people who should be loving him misunderstand him. And so take your misunderstandings to a Jesus who was misunderstood and understands what you're feeling. But back to Jesus and his response. Look at verse 33 with me, because as shocking as it is that his family is calling him out of his mind, it is nothing compared to what Jesus says next. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asks. And that doesn't seem like a big deal in our culture, but to say that in a public place with your family right outside the house calling to you would be devastating. It would be an atomic bomb socially. Silence and gasp would have filled the room. People would have recoiled from Jesus himself. And the silence that would have followed would be that eerie, maybe we should get out of here. Jesus isn't the person we thought he would silence. Why? Because the cultural expectation of the family in first century Israel was family is first, it is foremost, and it is unquestionable. And it isn't even family defined as a man and a woman being married. It's your blood family. And not even really your parents as much as your blood siblings. To defy or deny your siblings would be the most treacherous and despicable act possible in their culture. So for Jesus to not come outside and instead now question who his family is in front of all these people would have been a show-stopping moment of deep uncomfort, not just for the family, but for his followers and for the spectators. But Jesus is not careless. He's not here to roll around and hurt people. But instead, Jesus is a careful, careful man. He's the great physician. He's a careful God. And he's cutting his family right now, but it's for their good and it's for our good. See, Jesus's question reveals that being part of this family of God will have nothing to do with physical descent. This harsh question, he is actually using it to save his family from standing on the outside and bringing them to the inside by calling them not to trust in their physical family like everybody else, but to instead trust in him as the source of what family will be, as we'll see in the following verses. 
Because Jesus, remember, Jesus is not just saving us from sin. And he's not just saving us from the wrath of God due for us. And Jesus is making us whole new people. He is restarting humanity with himself. He is bringing us above the fall. And that is the good news that we will be a spiritually alive family, God's family called the church. He's not just, per, he's not, God's not just handing out personal salvations and relationships of Jesus. He is building a family of God called the church. And that's why Jesus drops a bomb in the middle of this setting. Look with me in verses 34 and 35. This is an intense text. He says, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Imagine in the silence where there's just some dogs fighting uh, by a trash can in the background and everyone else is looking for the door. And Jesus' next big phrase, I don't know how long he waited, but he looks through the silence and he looks into your eyes and says, you are my sister. You are my brother. You are my mother. It would be the most comforting and maybe confusing thing possibly said. Jesus is radically redefining his actual family and he's redefining ours. And I want you to be clear, Jesus is not endorsing ditching your physical family as he will not be ditching his physical family. Actually, he criticizes religious leaders for doing just such a practice. And as harsh as he speaks right here, the gospels will tell a story for the rest of Jesus's life of him looking after his mother to the point of his last breaths hanging on the cross. He's giving instruction to his disciples to make sure my mother is cared well for to her death. So Jesus is not saying we should ditch or neglect or ignore our physical family. Instead, Jesus has been placed in this particular family in order to be a witness to the glory of God by living in truth and grace with them, just as you have been placed in your particular family to live out grace and truth as a witness to who God is to your family. You are not in any family by mistake, but by the particular purpose of God, both immediate and extended. That's an invitation not to treat them less because of this passage, but to treat them greater, to serve them in witness that you're part of a new family of God and they can be too. But Jesus is declaring that anyone who follows Jesus is now a part of God's family. Anyone who follows Jesus is now a part of God's family. And guess what God's family does? They do the will of God. God's family does God's will. Your physical family will no longer hold a candle to your spiritual paternity being with God the Father, with Jesus as your eldest brother, as the Holy Spirit living inside you. And every other Christian who has ever lived in any country in any century is now a part of a global, ancient, and future family with you. That means God's family is now our first priority. It's our highest allegiance. It's our deepest relationship. And God's family redefines how we interact with everything and everyone else in our lives, including our birth or physical family. But there's a key to all this. Because I asked in the beginning, who is Jesus's family? 
And Jesus gives a clear answer. You are if you do the will of God. So it becomes infinitely important. What is the will of God? What do we need to do? If that's the way into the kingdom, if that's the way into the family, if that's how Jesus defines family, it's those who do the will of God, then what's the will of God? And before those of you who love rules or those of you who are maybe a little more legalistic get too excited, Jesus has a pretty paradoxical view of what it means to do God's will. Look at John 6. He's so clear. People say, what work must I do to get God? What work must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one, Jesus, he has sent. Believe in the one the Father has sent. God is not interested in your spiritual resume. He's not interested in your good deeds. He's not interested in your excuses. But God's will for you is to believe in the one in whom he sent. Jesus is God's will for your life. And until that part gets right and that part starts, there isn't a will for your life. It's powerful, potent stuff, but it puts Jesus at the very center of human existence. And Jesus is either a megalomaniac to make such a claim, or he's the real deal. But there's not a lot in between. Because here's the thing. For you to believe in Jesus, what's that mean? It's to believe Jesus is who he says he is. And who's Jesus say he is? He says he's both God and man. He says he is the atonement or he is the death or he's the sacrifice for all the sins of all the world on the cross. That he was buried for three days, then rose again out of the grave, conquering sin, death, and the devil to hand us a new life spiritually, to live forever with God and his family. That's what it means to believe in Jesus, to believe in the one in whom he sent. And maybe your brain's starting to tease out the implications of this because it makes Christianity unique among all thinking and all religions of all time. Jesus' family is now the most inclusive family in the history of the world and the most exclusive. Jesus is redefining family so inclusively that anybody and everybody can enter the family of God. There is no favored ethnic or cultural backgrounds. There's, it doesn't matter what your story is. You can enter God's family and you can enter God's story of redemption through doing the will of God. And this radical inclusivity comes with the extreme price of exclusivity. It's the most exclusive religion in the world. Why? Because there's simply no path to God's family except through Jesus. Look with me at John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's the great paradox of Christianity, that anyone can become a Christian. Murderer, become a Christian. Death row, become a Christian. Lost as a duck your whole life, become a Christian. Yet there's only one way to become a Christian. It's through an absolute surrender, repentance, and belief in Jesus, a wholehearted belief in Jesus, a belief in Jesus and so that your actions would follow, a giving up everything else to put the family of God first because God is now my father and Jesus is my only hope kind of belief in Jesus. 
And this redefinition of family should shake us up if we assume we're close to Jesus on the merit of anything but faith in Jesus. You are not close to Jesus because your mom was close to Jesus. You're not close to Jesus because you have a bunch of Jesus-y books in your house. You're not close to Jesus because you went to a Christian private high school or a Christian college or you were homeschooled. You're not close to Jesus because your daddy or granddaddy was a preacher and you're not close to Jesus just because you were raised in the church, even this church. And this redefinition should also give great hope to those of you who assume that you're far and far away from God. Because the truth is everyone's invited. No one has a leg up. It doesn't matter if you had a good family, bad family, sad family, no family. It doesn't matter because Jesus wants you in his family. It doesn't matter because Jesus wants you in his family. That's why he's blowing up the room. That's why he's ruining maybe his family's reputation. That's why he's shocking them to the very core of who they know is their identity to say, hey, there's a new family of God and it's starting now. I am your brother. God will be your father and we are going to march on to eternity. But let's circle back. Because to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord is the start of God's will for your life. But once you believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, God's will for our life is to obey him. We like to separate these things. Like I can believe in Jesus, but it has no consequence for my life. There's no category for that in the New Testament. To take Jesus as Lord means to listen and obey. The sign that God has done something spiritually new in you is you seek to obey God. You want to obey God. You desire to obey God. If that is not happening, then you do not have Jesus. And so it becomes critically important. What do we need to know to obey God? What sorts of things should we be doing? What's it mean to obey Jesus? And I have bad news than good news. Y'all cool to start with the bad news? Yes, one yes. Thank you, Megan. (laughs) The bad news is this. The New Testament has 1,050 separate commandments in it. Be this, not that. Do this, not that. Have this attitude. Put on this. Take off that. Be like Christ. 1,050. And so in one way, that's terrifying because that's a lot of laws. And a second way that shows we need to read God's word or to have any idea what God's will for our life is. That's ludicrous to say, I know God's will for my life, but I don't read God's word. You'll never know. But three, here's the good news. Jesus is a good older brother and he summarizes all 1,050 into two commandments. Look at Mark 12 for me. This is God's will for your life. If you are a Christian, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Therefore, God's will at any given time for any given situation for his family is to love him, which means to listen to his word and love one another. That is always God's general advice for all situations. Now, the Old and New Testament inform what that love looks like with the holiness and power and kindness and gentleness and finality of God considered as well but it remains our governing operating system for the Christian and in God's family is love. And love is the mark of our family. It's our coat of arms. It's our signature move. 
But we have to redefine love because our world has taken and twisted that word around so much that it's difficult to know what it even means. This love that we're called to is not a worldly love, but a biblical love has two components. It has two parts that are equally important. You can think of it like a two-wing plane. And the first one is affection or passion. That's usually what we think of of love, it's affection. And the second component is commitment. And the world wants to separate these out because love without commitment is lust. It's fleeting and it's ultimately self-centered. I'm not even just talking about romantic love. We can lust after things, we can lust after jobs, we can lust after our future. We can do all sorts of things without commitment. It's just affection run wild and that's lust, that's not love. It's saying, I love you because I need you, at least for now, or at least today, or at least for a little while. And the other way, it plays the other way. Love without affection is a contract. It's neglect. It's once again, self-centered. It's not lovingly others focus. It's I love you because I have to. That doesn't fly on a wedding day. I take these vows because I have to baby. It's not going to work. That's not what love is. No one wants to be in that relationship. That's not biblical love. And we get this love with affection and commitment from Jesus. Because if you ever thought about this, Jesus is the perfect God. Jesus needs absolutely nothing, including he doesn't need us. Jesus doesn't need us. He's not a needy man. Instead, he doesn't need us but he actually wants us. He has affection for you. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. That's true affection. I want you because I want you. And even as the agony of the garden of Gethsemane dawned on Jesus, the night before the cross, the man is sweating blood over the stress and the coming pain that he will be stretched out and hung high and torn apart. And then the wrath of God poured out on him because of our sins. Jesus remained committed to the father's will because guess what? Jesus didn't have to die. Jesus chose God's will chose the will of the Father to die for us because of the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's so much trust and so much love and so much joy that that's when Jesus made the decision to follow the will of the Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross. That's commitment. And what's that accomplishing? To bring you into our huge God's love. That's what he's doing. That's why he's making us a new family. And it's not just personal salvations, but it's togetherness. That's what the church is. It's this bride. It's this relationship with God. And that's what it's based on, this love that Jesus won through affection and commitment. And it continues this day for all who believe in him. I want you to just hear Matthew 23 with me, verse 37. It's one of my favorite verses because you usually don't think of Jesus in this way. We think, hey, Jesus loves me. But listen to the longing of your God's heart for you. This is him knowing the cross is coming, staring at the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together 
as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. This is the eternal God speaking. He compares himself to a mother chicken that wants to take us as baby chicks under his literal wings and hold us tight because he longs for us. He doesn't flippantly love us. He affectionately commits to us. And that's biblical love. And that's the God who's reaching out and reaching for you. That's the God who wants you in his family. And I can't think of a better application of biblical love, of that's the main outflow of being a part of God's family, than your commitment to meaningful membership in a local church. Every single command to love in the New Testament, every letter in the New Testament that says, do this or that for one another, is always in the context of a local church. That's who all the letters are written to, the churches in Galatia, the churches in Ephesus, the churches in Rome. There's no understanding in the New Testament that someone would live somewhere locally and not bond with other believers to live out their Christian lives together. And I can't think of a better way to literally be the family of God, to put the family of God first in your life than to prioritize your relationship with the Lord and then prioritize the relationship with other Christians to live out that. That is God's plan to grow you. Sometimes it's popular in kind of the millennial culture to say, I'm gonna go on this great journey, I'm gonna find myself and God's gonna meet me at Yellowstone Park. And that sounds cool in one way. But in another way, if you look in the New Testament, it's not saying go on a vision quest. It's saying love your neighbor, love your brothers and sisters, serve them with all your heart. And most of those letters are about forgiving each other when wronged, serving and helping people back into the church when they've wandered serving the poor and waiting for the coming of Jesus. That's God's plan to grow you, to believe the gospel in the ups and downs of everyday relationships. It's how God gets glory, and it's also how Jesus is gonna fulfill the Great Commission. Look at John 13, 55 with me. It says, by this, all people, not some people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God's plan A of the Great Commission to make disciples and go to the nations is that we would be a people of love for God and love for one another. As Paul would say, without love, we're a clanging gong or a clanging cymbal. We're hollow. So sometimes I hear people say, I wanna make disciples. I wanna go to the nations. I wanna dominate the world, you know, all this. And that's awesome. But I'm more worried about the barometer of love in their life because we're not interested at Sojourn in sending clanging gongs to distant lands. We're interested in sending great lovers of people to go love a lost people far away. Because here's the thing, while the local church is the primary theater of God's glory and love and growth with one another, we're also called to love outsiders, people who don't believe, people who are far away. But we don't do that at the neglect of those close to us. It's a both and. God's will for your life is to love others in affectionate and committed ways with the expectation the New Testament is you do this in the local church. Without local church membership, without a place to share and commit and share love with, our Christianity becomes anchorless. It lacks root. We will struggle to thrive. God provided the church to help us thrive. 
and you may soon shrivel and die. You know friends have fallen away from church and then suddenly doubting God a couple years later. It's a common story, it's not rare. And so I have two applications here. One, if you're not a member, I would ask that you consider being a member of Sojourn Community Church. You can look on your bulletin, it's one of the first things. You can go to the website, you can log on, and you can sign up for class. There's one on September 22nd, it's most of the day. Get your questions answered, you don't have to commit to anything yet, and you can just hear all about it from your pastors. And the second thing, if you've been a member for a long time or a short time, I would ask that this fall that you reset your relationships, because relationships are like gardens. Who has a garden here? Throw your hand up. All right, guys. At one point, gardening's gonna become cool in your life. It's gonna happen. Gardening's awesome. But the thing with a garden, just because you had a great haul and a great fruitfulness one summer is no guarantee of the next. It takes hard work of tilling the soil, of planting the seeds, of helping things grow up, of pulling weeds. And the same thing is true of our relationships. And whether you've been a member a long time or a short time, you can see you're only gonna get in what you get out. To have a meaningful relationship means you're cultivating the garden of your relationships. You're thinking about these people and thinking about your relationship to them. You're thinking about forgiveness. You're thinking about your confession. You're thinking about your need to love with less expectation of everybody else. You're thinking about how to serve and love others. And that's the tilling of the ground to have a fruitful harvest. So whether that's diving deeper in your current CG, whether it's starting in a new CG, whether it's serving in kids or connect or mercy or any of the wonderful places or music, I don't know what that is for you, member, but I ask that you go meaningful and deep in your relationships and take it as a reset this fall. You are the family of God and a mature faith loves, forgives, and reinvests in the rest of the family. But I wanna point out the primary reason if you're feeling kind of like, eh, I don't know, Justin. I don't know if I can commit. I don't know if I really wanna be affectionate to another human I don't know if I really wanna be committed to other humans or people. Because I would say the primary reason we struggle with a word like this, and it's uncomfortable, is A, we live in a commitment, we live in an anti-commitment culture, a no long-term contracts culture. But really, and this is true for me, so I know it's true for you too, is we become unrooted from the Father's love. We start to doubt the Father's affection and commitment to us. And let me tell you a story about that. See, there was a man who lived in South Georgia around the turn of the 1900s, in the early 1900s. He was actually in a city called Albany, and calling it a city is a vast overestimation. It's less than 1,000 people then, and they farmed pecans, and he owned a huge farm, and he had a big family. And the family grew up, and they went from babies to toddlers to young, young adults, and one of the family members was named Harris. Harris was the second oldest son, and instead of loving life on the farm, he hated it. Harris started to ask his brothers and sisters, don't y'all wanna get out of here? Aren't you tired of how hot it is? Aren't you tired of how dusty and dirty we are as we work with all the other workers day in and day out? And so one day, Harris turned 18 and he went to his father and mother and he said, hey, I'm gonna get out of here. Will you just give me whatever I'm doing my inheritance now and you'll never see me again and you won't have to worry about me. His mother and father pleaded with him, his brothers and sisters pleaded with him, but Harris was determined and his parents let him go. 
He boarded a train with his money and headed to the biggest city he could think of. Within a couple of days, he was in New York and he was living the life he wanted. He had big ambitions and so he started his own business and he worked hard and he made his investments and he invested deeper and deeper and suddenly he invested all of his money and he put it all into business and he started to succeed and he started to go to the restaurants he wanted to go to. He started to go to the, the shows they wanted to on Broadway. He started to be with the in crowd, he started to date the folks he wanted to, he started to have the friends that made him feel good. And then one day the stock market crashed and the Great Depression started. His investments were gone in an instant. His business started to struggle tremendously. And his social habit of drinking started to spiral as he started to drink his sorrows at night more and more often until he found himself in deeper addiction. And when the money was gone, so were his friends. It's funny how that works. And so he found himself living in a low-rent neighborhood sleeping behind houses, behind sheds, under bridges, doing odd jobs, just trying to survive day in and day out, pulling empty bottles out of the back of trash cans, looking for another drink. And one day as the years rolled by and life got tougher and tougher, he was walking by a department store window and the glass was so clean, he finally saw himself, but he barely recognized himself. He couldn't even see the young boy who used to play under the pecan trees. He couldn't see the guy with a southern draw. Instead, he saw a man who looked about 20 years too old. And that night when he went to bed, he had a vision. And he said, what if I just went home? What if I just went and tried to be a worker? And maybe dad will just give me a spot out of pity. So he scrounged up what money he had and he boarded another train. And the train chugged along the tracks and he slept all the way from New York to Atlanta as if he hadn't slept in years. And when he changed trains and got on the train to Albany to go to South Georgia, suddenly the reality set in that this pipe dream of being accepted became a nightmare. He hadn't written or called his family in years. He'd left on basically the worst possible terms. And in a whole way to Albany, he was shaking with the prospect of actually having to look his family in the face and beg for their forgiveness. As he got off at the general store, he thought about getting a ticket to just go straight back to New York, that this isn't worth it. But he bumps in to the foreman of his father's farm. The longtime foreman looks at Harris and he barely recognizes him and thinks he looks terrible. And the first thing he says, Harris, is that you? Harris nods sheepishly. And then the foreman says, does your dad know you're back? Does your mom know you're back? They're gonna be over the moon. But Harris, he's too nervous. He's He's panicking. He doesn't know what to say. And so he comes up with a crazy plan. He says, "I, I, I can't go see mom and dad. It's not gonna work. I shouldn't be here. This is a mistake. And as the foreman keeps urging him, he goes, well, listen, listen, if you care so much, go tell my dad that I'm here. Go tell my dad that I'm here and and that tomorrow I'm gonna board a train to Savannah. I'm gonna head east. I'll be on the track that goes around the edge of our property at the bend. And tell my dad if if, if he's willing to forgive me at all, if he's willing to give me an inch, if he's willing to let me be a worker for you, man, if he's willing to even look at me, to just put one white sheet over one of the pecan trees. And then I'll know to get off at the next stop and I'll make my way back to the farm. 
And as Harris is kind of acting crazy and shaking, giving out this plan, the foreman says, man, this is kind of a crazy plan, but he agrees to do it. And Harris wanders out of the general store and sleeps behind it that night, turning in the dirt, wishing that he had just died in New York, then suffer to feel the weight of not being forgiven by his family. So the next day he got on the train. He had no money, he snuck on, he found a cabin. There was a stranger in the cabin he sat opposite from in a booth with a window. And Harris was so nervous, he, the train started to roll down the track and, the, and it started to hit and it started to go. And, he, and, it, and his anxiety with his pulse is just rising and rising and rising as he knows the train is picking up speed and the bend isn't that far away. And his head's between his legs as he starts to weep and weep and it starts to be a little puddle on the floor as he's shaking. The stranger says, do you need a doctor? What's going on? And Harris just blurts out, sir, I don't need anything, but I need one thing from you. I can't look out the window. I just can't do it. I can't do it, sir. Will you please, when I tell you, just look out the window and tell me what you see. Tell me if you see anything white. Tell me if you see a rag. Tell me if you see a sheet. Tell me if there's nothing there, but I can't bear to look. And the stranger thought this was the strangest man he's ever met, but he was a little scared of him, so he said yes. And as the train picked up more speed and it hit the bend, Harris knew this is where my father's property starts. And his head was between his knees, but he just yelled at the stranger, just look, just look, I told you, you said you would look, just look. And the stranger was silent. And Harris pleaded, just look, I can't do it. I just can't look out the window, please do it. And the sir sighed and he says, young man, you need to look for yourself. And Harris continued to scream and the stranger grabbed him by the shoulders and he pressed his face to the glass and Harris stubbornly kept his eyes closed until the stranger says, open your eyes. And when Harris opened his eyes, he saw white sheets on every tree for as far as I could see in every direction, waving in the wind like a great white ocean. And you probably guess how the story ends. And he gets off and comes home because the father had heard the foreman and not said the story was crazy and he didn't care where Harris had been. He didn't care really what had happened. He didn't care about Harris leaving. He had announced to his family, we're gonna get my son back. So everyone go, borrow every sheet from every farm, go to every town, spend all the money you need. We're buying every single sheet in South Georgia and meet me back here and we'll hang them all night because we are getting Harris back. Entrance into God's family starts with the understanding that God's father is more faithful to you than you'll ever be to him. And until you're convinced of God's love, I'm not just talking once, but each day, you'll never really commit to affectionately loving another person. It's too scary. Until you're secure in God's love, you're not gonna give yourself without expectation, without expecting anything in return to the love of another human. And that includes your physical family. 
But guess what? That story is true for you. The white sheets are up of God's love and forgiveness and faithfulness to you as far as the eyes can see. Being in God's family means Jesus is committed and affectionate love for you forever. And we know this because on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and says, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. This is the sign that the white sheets are up for all of God's children. And the table is open for anyone who is ready to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's our tradition here at Sojourn that we have stations in the front half of the room. For the front half of the room, we have stations in the back. For the back half of the room, gluten-free communion is to my left, your right. And if you're a Christian, please take your time. There's no need to rush this meal. Repent of any sins that are on your mind and come up when you're ready to accept that the white sheets are up for you today. And for non-Christians, this meal is not for you. But talk to a pastor, talk with who you came with, and we can get you ready to take this meal even next week when you've believed upon Jesus as your only hope. Let us pray.